Driven Minds Podcast, Season 2. Yes, this sir. is Franz Bowen. This is Trav Weeks. Got a wicked, dope, Super inspirational dope. guest in the so building today. Right. Um, award-winning content creator, uh, mm. Forbes columnist, mm. uh, creator of the Get Paid to Be Yourself column and soon-coming mm. series. Um, you might know him as one of your... Uh, uh, developers of uh, Complex Hustle mm-hmm. and Revolt. Yes, sir. The former social media and editorial director at Revolt Media, mm-hmm. Mr. Julian Mitchell. There you go. Hey, what's up, guys? <laughs> Get some I appreciate that. Show. That was a very studio audience. You know I appreciate the intro. Word. There you go. Mad hours on intro. LinkedIn, son. <laughs> oh man! Shout out to LinkedIn too. Word up! <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, man. Um, Mitch is a uh, just a, 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 a good friend as well as um, a colleague of mine. Um, how I got in touch with Mitch is actually through our um, CMO here at um, Natalia. She always, she, she always knows what's going on. She's just, she's just super dope. And she was like, yo, you got to click up with this guy. You have to meet Mitch. And um, one thing led to another. Uh, definitely DM the brother, <laughs> and uh, we Word. had a conversation. We had one conversation. I think that spanned for like a, over an hour, and you know, yeah. this, um, like minds, like minds is really connect. You that know? was a real and, conversation, uh, super real conversation. I got to learn a lot about dude and um, his his extensive work history, his um, really unique skill set, and um, how he's able to build platforms, his vision, and and it's been um, just really inspirational for me, you know. Um, I appreciate that. Absolutely, absolutely. And Mitch, just tell, you know, tell the people about where you started, where you're from, and um, how you got into this digital content world. Yeah, man. That's that's always an interesting question because I think it could start at a lot of different places. But I was born in Seattle, Washington. Um, Lived there until I was 11 years old. Mm. Then I moved to Las Vegas. My grandmother passed, moved to Las Vegas. Mm. Um, Was in Las Vegas, graduated high school, went to finish elementary, middle school, graduated high school in Vegas. Mm. Uh, Got a scholarship to go to Occidental College, small liberal arts college in LA. Uh, Shout out to Obama, 83. Obama went to uh, Oxy. Oh, what? So I went to, yeah, we had the same advisor, actually. Crazy. The dude who told me to write and be an English major is the same dude who told Obama to get into politics. Same That's guy. crazy. Um, this dude is, what you, he out here calling a long shot. I'm talking about in a real way, Roger Boshe, rest in peace to uh, Roger Boshe. He passed actually oh. this year. Oh, RIP. Um, but no, nah, I went to Occidental, and then uh, while I was at Occidental, it was a completely new environment for me. Like I went into LA not thinking Hollywood, not thinking, you know, business, entertainment. I was just going into it, following all the things I was passionate about. So when I was in school early on, I realized that all the stuff that I thought was fly and cool and interesting and and things that could really bring people together, it was just missing. There was just this huge white space for it. Mm. And Oxy was such a prestigious, you know, like liberal arts college that 1,600 students, you know, these are, they considered it like the Ivy, an Ivy League or the West Coast type school. Mm. So you just imagine, you know, watching Dear White People, you know, like what yeah. that kind of institution can be like uh, socially, mm-hmm. like culturally. Um, and so early on, I just kind of went on this mission to just, bring the whole culture of what I like there. So that's kind of where it kicked off initially because I started throwing all the concerts and running the radio station and writing for the newspaper and realizing that I had this natural kind of gift that I recognized in high school to bring different communities together Mm -hmm. and be able to speak a language to people from all walks of life from different backgrounds because I experienced that so much growing up you know like moving around different neighborhoods different schools different environments you know different types of people from different walks of life like I've always been around that my whole life Mm -hmm. so that just became a part of who I was and like you know my diversity of just interests and passions and things like that so I would throw myself in all of that and uh, speak to all the different groups kick with all the different groups but I was being authentically myself. So whenever I went to do things, everybody from all these groups showed up. Everybody showed love. Mm. It created culture. Like that mm. was the first time where I realized that I, in my diversity of interest, could create culture and like mm. build communities around shit that I liked and right. I thought was fly. That I knew if I thought it was fly, other people had to think it was fly. Mm-hmm. Or like at least they could relate to it. So uh, they had a tradition of 
not really having like a lot of fly shit basically or different events and things going on. Um, so I was one of the people who kind of really came in and shifted that whole culture to where, you know, they started throwing festivals and all kinds of stuff after that. But it was like none of that going on before I got there. Wow. Um, and so when I was there, I interned at Warner Brother Records. Mm. And uh, the only opportunity they had when I was there at that time was working in alternative music. And uh, I jumped in alternative. And this is a time, too, where, um, you know, I'm watching the videos of all the people I was inspired by, you know, like the Puffs, the Jay-Z's and mm-hmm. the Mark Echoes and all these people. And, you know, it's just that thing. You got to have this relentless grind. You just got to go for it. You got to have this drive. Mm-hmm. And so I was going super duper hard. So when I went to the label, I was like, yo, just give me an email address <laughs> and like a, a key card. <laughs> and uh, I'm here first thing in the morning and I ain't leaving until it's over. So I started an alternative and uh, promotions. And what I would do is uh, I would go super hard, um, you know, working on the different artists we had. It was like Tegan and Sarah, Green Day, Mm. like Metallica, all these Uh. type of people, right? But then I would hurry up and hustle that, and then I would go in the offices of like all the A&Rs and, you know, all the people in marketing and all the managers and all the people, and I would just sit there and like stare at their plaques and ask them all kinds of crazy questions about how they got to where they were and have them play me records and like, you know, I would play them records of all my friends that I thought were dope at school and I would bring people through and have them play records and I would like, Mm -hmm. you know, and it just came this thing where I had this whole separate hustle while I was interning and, uh, you know, would set up meetings where my friends would come in and like play records for the ANRs. I almost got a couple of my friends signed actually when I was an intern. Um, she was the plug. Uh, for real. So mm-hmm. I just I just became known in those spaces too as just this young dude who's just like a super duper hustler, like a right. super duper hustler. Like he knows the music, he's passionate about it, he asks questions, he works hard. Mm-hmm. And so when the story of that is, one of my first kind of glimpses was when the label started to kind of tank a little bit, like Warner Brothers, because they didn't really have a strong hip-hop roster. We just signed Wiz at that time. Mm. Like, he just had Pittsburgh Sound and Say Yeah just kind of dropped and Make It Hot was coming out. And, Ink My Whole Body. Yeah, I remember when Ink My Whole Body and all that came out. I remember sitting with um, uh, Ja'Cory, who... Uh, was making his MySpace page. And I remember we picked a photo of him with uh, the Khalifa, the tattoos and all of that, and yeah. like redid his whole MySpace page and like all that kind of crazy stuff. So uh, I remember taking Wiz Khalifa's watermark, like the CDs of Make It Hot to the radio and pitching wow. it to the radio station <laughs> wow. in a yellow Pittsburgh sound t shirt from That's his mixtape days. Like, yeah. uh, but, um, you know, and then Brandon Scales, shout out to, to B. Scales, who's still at Atlantic now. He became my boss because when all that stuff happened, they kept me. Like, a lot of people were gone. Mm-hmm. Like, and uh, we were kind of like a tandem. We would just, you know, hop in the car, drive miles to radio stations and wow. have impact meetings. And I'd be sitting there pitching records as, a, as an intern wow. to, like, programming directors and stuff like that. So I just was, like, hustling, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, um building relationships and then I started booking artists for shows at other schools and other festivals and stuff like straight from campus I, I used to have two phones I used to keep the Blackberry on me I used to keep the, uh, the, the Sprint phone yeah, so yeah, I was yeah. just like hustling through college you know what I'm saying and mm. I also ended up interning with Debbie Allen which was huge for me um, oh, and when I when I did that it was like producing these nightly events and she had never had nightly events at her intensives like summer intensive winter intensive oh. dance dance she's at debbie allen dance academy yeah. uh. um and i've met so many great people who are like my homies to this day all from that grind of like debbie allen dance academy back wow. in the day i feel like she debbie she, allen was the it, it still is like a super man everybody yeah. so well she told me she probably don't even remember this i was so young but i remember one day uh she told me I didn't even know who he was at the time, but after I did these series of events, because I had imagine I'm a kid in college, mm-hmm. 
not getting paid, catching a bus at 6.30 in the morning from Eagle Rock to Culver City to go to the thing. She made me dance all day. So part (laughs) of the deal was I had to dance. I had to do ballet, tap, jazz, flamenco, modern. That's crazy. Literally. From Debbie. That was part of the deal. She made me take these classes. So I'm I'm like a college kid and literally in beginner's ballet class. With kids. Can you still ballet or not? PA? Nah, that's like, that Grand takes years. Rode Jean Like, But like, uh, nah, it was a real thing. Like, it was more about her, it, it was more about the discipline uh, and uh, that's why I respect it. training your body and, and like, and learning the culture. There's so much history and culture tied to dance. When you really study it, mm-hmm. like I remember learning Dunham and Swing and mm-hmm. All of that, and you're learning about you know like the history of it. So so much of dance, when you appreciate the art of it, is just tied into culture and yeah. history and like mm-hmm. community on top of just like your body. But I would have to dance all day, and then in between and after, I would be in the office with her, like in the office with her team. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Miss Harris. Like I would be back there with them all day on the phones, calling people, making flyers, like mapping stuff out, calling all my little connects that I had, like all the people I met in the music business, all my dancer friends, everybody, trying to book artists for step shows and spoken word Hmm. events and all this kind of stuff and like a battle of the bands and a whole thing. And so I'm just trapping off the phone, off the landline, you know what I'm saying? Like um, that whole time and ended up throwing... uh, a step show, a battle of the bands. Um, um, they had a dance battle one night. We did Deaf Poetry Jam at the Nate Holden one night. Mm. We did uh, a bunch of different stuff. And uh, I remember afterwards, after she saw it all, and Miss Harris was like, "Yo, this, you know, this kid is like, he's the kid that did all this." Like, mm-hmm. and uh, she was just like, "You're gonna be Stan Lathan. You're like Stan Lathan. You're like a producer." She was like, "You're not." She's like, you're not a dancer, honey. You're a producer. <laughs> and I didn't know who Stan Lathan even was at that time. You know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't really grasp it, but uh, it made a lot of sense later on. But no, nah, so then I interned with her, and uh, I learned so much from that process, made a lot of great relationships, and it was really just another hustle, you know? And then she had me come do it again for the winter intensive and then the summer intensive again. Oh, wow. And... Uh, I think I started getting paid barely like a little bit the the last time I did it, but I just wrote it out for the experience, for the relationships, for the mm-hmm. opportunities. I met a lot of incredible people mm-hmm. um, who saw my hustle then. And then uh, at that time, as I'm doing all this kind of stuff, um, there was a guy, Will Campbell, who uh, was really instrumental in helping me with my hustle through college, you know, like... Um, I was writing music. Like I said, I was trying to get people signed. I was in and out of studios. I was running around mm-hmm. doing all this kind of stuff. And I used to want to be an A&R. That was like my first dream job, you know. Too. Uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was like, that's what I want. <laughs> that was the cool job. Duh. You know what I'm saying? I was like, yo, I got the hustle. I got the connections. I got like, I got the sauce. I'm going to make this happen. I got the ear. I'm going to make this happen. Uh, I was already doing it all at school too. You know, like all the concerts and all the different stuff. So I'm like, okay, we, we lit. Like this is this is where it's at. And he was really like a, a integral part of that. He was always giving me so much game because he was an alumni of Oxy, but he was in the music business. And... Okay. Uh, he also ran an agency, like a shop. And at that time, yes. having a digital agency meant you made websites. And, and his company made websites for a lot of the big artists and producers and people like that. Oh, so he took a liking to me and would always give me opportunity and kind of put me in positions and, get, and give me game at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, he would tell me one day, he's like, yo, you know, like all that stuff you're doing is a career like you know that right like mm-hmm. all this different stuff you're doing you know that's like branding and marketing and A&R and being a promoter like throwing mm-hmm. concerts and events he's like yo you're literally building the concerts and events from the ground up from the idea to selling tickets to packing it out to bringing the artists to mm-hmm. he's like yo you're literally doing everything like people get paid a lot of money to, <laughs> to do the stuff that you're doing yeah. at the level you're doing it as a college kid. Like, you know what I'm saying? Cause I'm just, you know, I made it to a point where I parlayed at school. Like yeah. I started getting all the, the, the people to give me the budgets and, and let me do my thing. But, and I would, I would make my little change, but I didn't think 
about it in the context of like, yo, I really could make whatever kind of career I want out of this. Yeah, like, right. this could go crazy. And you probably were still having fun. Like, I was having that. fun. Yeah. But at the same time, like anybody who knows me, you ask anybody who knew me through college, they was like, yo, Julian was crazy. <laughs> like crazy. Like I was so focused mm. on the things I wanted to build and do. I was like relentless. I was in people's offices. I was in people's like, it's almost like the stories in the label, you know, where people used to like run up in the office. Yeah. Boy, I used to run up on the head of the programming board. I used to run up on the head of the student union. I used to run up on the people in the, in the administrative buildings. And I was like about my stuff. Mm. I remember times to get budgets, I would sit in on the little town halls with my proposal only in front of administrators, mm-hmm. and I would sit there and pitch to them, this is why you need to throw this event, and this is why you need to give me 30 racks, and this is why you need to do X, Y, and Z huh. to get to get it done. Like I was just in a library all night working on decks and, and walking through with purpose everywhere that I went. I just had that kind of like mm-hmm. drive about me, and everybody was just like, yo, this dude kind of crazy. Because mm-hmm. like, I was going to class, too. I was getting good grades. I was like always in a library studying. Focus. And I just didn't sleep. It was like that whole thing. Mm-hmm. That's just the the kind of cloth culturally that I was cut from. That's what I was watching. This is what I'm doing. I'm like, yo, if this is really what I want to do, mm-hmm. like I really got to go do it. And the fast forward, when I got out of, of school, I moved to New York. And when I moved to New York, I thought, okay, you know, I really want to try this media thing for real. Like I'm never, you know, you imagine people being editors and corner offices of double XL and mm-hmm. like all that kind of stuff. I was like, yo, that's you know, you watch Brown Sugar and you see her yeah. in the corner office in New York. You're like, yeah. okay. <laughs> so I was like, yo, this is what I really want to do. I need to prove that to myself. That was the one thing I felt like I never really threw myself all the way into. And uh ended up quitting everything, moving to New York. Got a job at Bloomingdale's, bro. I was working at Bloomingdale's 59th Street. <laughs> and uh, I was working at All Saints in Bloomingdale's. And uh, ended up taking this internship with the company Multitude uh, New York. And they were getting a buzz. It was kind of popping. It was like a streetwear brand for skaters and like backpackers in the city. Okay. This is like 2009, 2010. Yeah. And they had this website that they were treating like a blog, but like nobody was really going to it. So... I made a deal with him. I said, yo, I'll handle all your marketing and stuff for you. Like, I'll help you make decks. I'll get you photographers. Like, whatever you need if you let me run this website. And the dude was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah, like, okay, kid. Like, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he literally, literally, he's like, okay, kid. Like, I don't know what you're doing. Yo, don't spit smile. <laughs> Boy, but, but I took that. And when I say I ran with it. Like, literally, I would work all day at 59th Street, and then I would hit, I was in these New York streets all night, mm. every day. I was at every concert, event, mm. festival, art show, documentary yeah. screening, and I was writing about everything. I was writing mm. profiles, features, the hottest things to watch in the city. Whoa. And it got to a point where, when I would start going through the blocks... Like, I remember there's people like Friendy who used to work at the Babe store, Friendy Limerin, and like mm. cats like that, or Bread in the City who now does a lot of stuff with like Moscow and all those dudes. Like, mm. I remember writing features about them and all the stuff that they was doing like way before. Wow. Like, and, and those cats could tell you, it got to a point where when I would go to certain spots in the city, people would stop me and be like, yo, like, you that dude, you write, you write for Multitude, right? Like, yo, you wrote that piece about so-and-so. Oh, you wrote that piece about Warby Parker. Yo, I read the joint you did about the Basquiat documentary. And so now I'm like, it's just me. People people started looking at it like it was a full-on like media site, like a blog. And I was the only one writing and managing the whole thing. Wow. And uh, I remember that was the first time where I said, okay. Like, I could really do this. You got something. Like, but, I could really, really do this. But from throwing concerts yeah. and... Um, and I'm just from, giving you, like, the full story, so you could cut me off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heard, no doubt. Because yeah. from throwing concerts and um and, and be able to, like, do a little A&R and, 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 and curating artists and whatnot, yeah. where did the love from writing come? Man, um, that's... that's See, that's... I'm going to take that back to... The short answer is there was always a part of me that loved writing. And love creative writing mm-hmm. and I used the way I used to listen to music um, I used to look at rap and and you know people like Nas who's my favorite artist mm-hmm. I used to get so immersed in the songs and the lyrics that like I, I'm the type where I memorize all the song like all the lyrics and 
and everything to where it felt like literature to me. Like those are like the first audio books I ever listened to. It was like Nas and Jay Z and people like that. So I, it developed my vocabulary because I used to rap it so much that that's how I would develop a lot of my vocabulary and language and cadence and rhythm and all that kind of stuff that I write with today came from hip hop. It came from like learning that. So I always had this knack for writing. And when I was in high school, I was in an AP um, lit class. And uh, my teacher used to always say, I had, a, I had a teacher in high school, my freshman year of high school, who made me the editor of the paper out the blue, who was telling me like, yo, you're a genius level writer. And I said, wow. I don't know what you're talking about. Hmm. Like, I haven't really written in the paper. And I just remember him saying that to me. I didn't know where it came from. Hmm. Then my AP lit teacher, when I was when I came up, she was like, I really hope you take this writing thing seriously because you're really, really talented and the way that you think. Fast forward when I was in college, that same professor, right, right. I wanted to be in politics and I declared going right into school. I said, okay, I'm in international politics. I was taking DWA. Mm-hmm. And so your, your advisor picks two of your elective classes and because I was in politics, that's why I Roger Boucher, like I said, he was like the head politics guy. Gotcha. So I tell him this whole plan of how I want to change the world through politics. Mm-hmm. And then he hit me with the most game changing like conversation. He said, yo, you could definitely do that. You could change the world through politics. Like you have the passion, you have the drive. You know, I believe you're smart enough to, to eventually do that. Mm-hmm. But he's like, but you have ideas and you have an imagination mm-hmm. and you have a drive about you. So he's like, if you can master the ability to translate those ideas and translate those thoughts, there's no industry you can't conquer. Mm-hmm. You need to master the ability to communicate. That's what you need to do. He's like, so I think you should be an English major mm-hmm. and you, can, you should consider being a writer. And at that moment, it kind of hit me like, like, what? Like, okay. And then he put me in an English class, blew my mind. Then I started reading um, like James Ball and I read Race Matters by Cornel West. I read like Notes to a Native Son, like a book that changed my life by James Ball and then mm-hmm. Black Boy by Richard Wright and, um, you know, Invisible Man and like all these different books. And as I'm reading them, I'm learning the transformative power of words mm-hmm. and language and writing. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I was in the, when I was in college, Professor Foreman um, who like changed my life too? Uh, she's somebody who kind of beat the writing out of me. You know, like she's the one that pushed me and told me how powerful I was, like as a thinker and as a writer, mm-hmm. and how like this is my gift and this is like my my tool, like to to change the world. She mm-hmm. literally would would say that to me and tell me that and be like, "Yo, your your mind is like brilliant," you know. Mm-hmm. So she would never. She made me a great writer. She used to literally like beat it out of me. Mm. So then from that to what I was reading to still being heavily into the music and then seeing how what I'm reading in James Baldwin and what I'm hearing in Jay-Z have an intersect, Mm -hmm. then I started thinking about, wow, this perspective that I have and now I have the tools and the skills to share that perspective like I started seeing it as I started seeing the writing as less about, um, you know, just like news or storytelling or editorial. And like from very early on, I started seeing it as like a tool, like a really powerful way to change the way people think, to introduce a whole new perspective, to design culture through my words mm-hmm. and my thoughts the same way I did through events, the same way I did through everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw it as like a tool like that. And so then I fell in love with the power of my writing. I fell in love with like, you know, really being able to have a platform and a way to like have that kind of freedom and and liberty. Uh, And it became my activism. It became my like movement, my revolution, like all of that became through my writing and, and like seeing it as a way. So then, what my mind changed about writing is when it really was like, okay, like this is yeah. why I'm gonna do this and why I'm gonna keep doing this. And then I started taking that same work ethic literally into like 
perfected my craft, dog. I was like, you know, I'm super meticulous and like thorough and calculated about it. And I just kind of took it as a responsibility um, from there forward. I don't think I think like most writers or approach writing like most people do. So I think that just came from um, those experiences. So between the music, the courses, what I was reading, and what I began to understand about my skill as a writer and a communicator, that's, that kind of ecosystem made it all something I fell in love with. Career-wise, I fell into it, though. Mm. You know, like, I knew I wanted to do it, but it wasn't until I was at Revolt and we would, I was running social media and there were certain stories that I'm like, why is nobody talking about this? Hmm. Like, why is nobody talking about it this way? Like, nobody's having this conversation. I'll, I'll be like, yo, when this happens, this is what I think. Like, this is what I'm seeing. And it was so counter to what? anything I was reading on the internet, anything people was talking about, just so different. Yeah. So then I started feeling a responsibility. I was like, okay, I need to write that story. Like, hmm. I need to start that conversation. What, I need to lead that. What is a, a story that comes to mind that you had that type of uh, experience? Oh my God. I wrote a story called Dear NBA, Don't Blame Donald Sterling, Blame Yourself. Mm-hmm. I remember that story was like huge. I remember writing that story. That was tough. Yeah, and it basically, I literally drew the parallel of uh, the scene in 12 Years a Slave where um, the slave owner is bringing them like Solomon Northabee's bringing them all into that room and they're all, uh, you have the family, the woman with her kids and you have uh, Solomon there, you have all these different people there and they're basically being getting physicals, like they're stripped, all of them, like getting physicals and the guy who's running basically the examination is this really cutthroat, shrewd guy mm-hmm. and he's bringing people through and he's basically telling them what he's willing to price them at, wow. you know? And... Um, Donald Sterling had a moment where uh, one time when he was in the Clippers locker room one year, he had all the players like naked uh, and like brought while they were naked, he brought people through like brought. uh, That's a true story. Yeah, it was like a real thing. You know, like their shower, you know, like after games and stuff and and performed something pretty similar right like it made comments of like you know it's look crazy. at their body like and bringing how them through your stable like, wow. and he's the owner Horses. you know like and he's the owner or whatever wow. so i kind of started it off by drawing that parallel but then just getting into how the nba is built on this platform of um you know just like exploiting athletes and mm-hmm. like one of the analogies i gave too was jackie robinson i was like you know jackie robinson wasn't the first black baseball player because they were about inclusion and diversity. Jackie Robinson was the first black player because he filled the stands up and he made it interesting mm. and he created a situation where he was a poor black oppressed person with a family who represented a whole other lineage of other like poor black oppressed people who you knew that you can give them a fraction and change their life. Mm-hmm. They'll fill up all the stands you don't ever have to play a game. They make you exponentially more, a hundred times more, and then they become what all the other broke black people aspire to do. Mm-hmm. So then now you're getting a whole influx of talent, talent mm-hmm. that are gonna fill the stands and make it prime time. And you can sit in a suite, sit in the box, make a hundred times more, mm-hmm. and run a business that way. So Jackie Robinson was the guinea pig, mm-hmm. like. The test dummy of like oh, I should never look that yeah me neither you know <laughs> so like it's the idea and if you watch the movie if you watch 42 yeah, you well, see it like yeah. playing outright you have the guy who is trying to convince Man, so like the right. owners and people like I'm telling you you really just need to let this boy play mm-hmm. you know like you see these stands uh, you need to fill the stands mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying like you need to fill them up Mm. Like people ain't gonna keep showing up to see these white people just play by themselves, and like we need something that's gonna take this league to the next level. That's gonna 
like do this and you know it's the same in every other sport it's like you 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 look at the nba and where most of the demographic come from and it's very similar but yeah it was just like this idea of while everybody was scrutinizing donald sterling and talking about him and him being racist is like that's just what the league embodies and it's all about and went into the history of how that is and like what that looked like and all of that. So that was, you know, one that always comes to mind. Um, in in the same yeah. in this in the same breath, like being able to your sport is you know writing and being able to um, articulate uh, certain ideas. Yeah. Um, when you got to revolt and and you and you mentioned the word responsibility, what yeah. was, what responsibility did you feel immediately? You know, to be to have that heaped upon you to. Because now, because revolt is you know geared to a, a whole generation of individuals who haven't even yeah, begun to like started to make serious decisions about life. Absolutely. Like so, what, what's what was that? What was that weight? If if that's a correct term, what did what did that uh, mean? Man, I mean, it definitely felt that way. I mean, from the first time I sat down uh, with Puff and he really gave me his point of view on how important revolt was to him and what it meant to him and mm. and and really being something for young creators and this next generation of change makers and things like that you know who were inspired through music through culture and all that mm-hmm. like i immediately felt the responsibility of the magnitude of it the magnitude of the moment so yeah. that's one thing you feel you're like yo this is really making history this is really like a network and it's really something that you know, is is at the highest level, you know, like if you ever felt like um, your work, you know, me to myself, if you ever felt like your influence and your work and your vision was at the highest level or built for a stage that's really t- for the culture, this is the moment that you got to step up to the plate mm and see it that way and treat it that way and Mm -hmm. give it that level of respect and like responsibility, which is part of what made me go super duper hard doing it. Then there was the idea that the responsibility of saying, you know, now that like I'm entrusted with this platform and building it up, what are the values or the needs really of the culture like what are the things people need to be talking about like I was thinking I was really big on conversations you know Mm. that's part of why we had conversations every day is like you know one of the things I used to always say is revolt we want to create control and advance all conversations about music Mm. like that matter to this audience you know what I'm saying like so I just felt a real task to use the platform to really make people smarter and make them appreciate music and culture in, in a different type of way and have conversations about it, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and really give other people a platform. Like, I, I also felt I had this huge responsibility also to be a platform that didn't exist for other people, like young talent, like emerging artists and videographers, photographers, all these different people, like... You know, I saw it as a as a as an opportunity to really be a platform for other people. Mm. Um, So there was a lot of that. Pardon me. No, Um, at at that point, was that your first? I mean, you you had you know spearheaded several projects prior to that, but Mm -hmm. was that your your first time? You know, like managing an entire team, and and in that vein, was was there kind of like a, a a curve for your team to kind of adjust to your style of management and be able to you know discover how how to tell a, a story through your lens? Yeah. Well, anytime you work for Sean Combs, there's no such thing as a curve. <laughs> um, it's kind of immediate, uh, literally. Um, so, like from day one, you're just it's it's like go time. Mm. Like you you got to press the button and you got to go. You got to figure it out. Like mm. that's that's part of it. But um, coming into this situation, I had managed teams before. Um, I had never managed that many people and people on both coasts, like mm-hmm. um, East Coast and West Coast, um, people with different sets, like designers, social media managers, writers, mm-hmm. shooters, like the whole nine. 
Um, so there was a lot of work to your point of learning curve. When I came in, I was very, very adamant. And anybody who worked for me or was around me at that time, too, knows that I was always like laying the vision out very clear. Like I was the king of decks, the king of like mm. pulling meetings together and walking people through yeah. exactly what I was thinking and why and exactly what, you know, when I would think of campaigns and stuff, I was very thorough about like putting it together and um, at the same time. So, so when I first got in, the first level of when I first got in was getting Puff and Andy and all the top people mm-hmm. locked into what my vision was. Mm-hmm. James Cruz and Andre and like all these people and neat all these people like at the top. It was so much of like getting them locked into how I thought and what my vision was for Revolt mm-hmm. and how I thought things should be and feel and look and be talked about. That was like the first level of that. Mm -hmm. Then once everybody bought in on that level, then it was like, okay, now to my team and to the people that I'm managing, right? Now it's about a vision that's, it's about executing. It's about, okay, so now that we got the overarching, let's come in. Here's my vision laid out very clear. Here's what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. Here's how it works. And then also getting everybody's input. I was always like, you know, asking people what they liked or what they felt like we should see or do or talk about or just dope things. I've never been closed off to that. So um, I was always open to seeing how we can make different things work because I always wanted people to, you know, feel like it's their movement too. It's their thing too. You know, like these are people who are shooting and writing and creating all the time. So um, a lot of it was just creating an environment and a structure with a very focused like set of principles and vision mm-hmm. to where people could freely be themselves and create and do what they wanted to do, but just always had a filter for which it could go through and always know what the intention was. Like, what is the intention of what we're trying to do? We want to start conversations. We want to introduce new ideas. We want to be a platform for new artists. We want to... like make this a platform for other people to feel like they want to come and be a part of this. So um, as long as we're staying in the vein of, of that, then, you know, everybody's dope and smart and, and talented. So it's more about like encouraging people and empowering people and pushing people to, to do what they want to do. Absolutely. You know? And I see you've definitely trans transitioned that same, um, I guess, uh, mentality or um to um your Forbes series getting paid to be yourself. Mm-hmm. Like I, I love those articles, man. When you just speak about Thank people you. who are actually um people actually who have positioned themselves in culture or in whatever various industry they're in and found yeah. found ways to actually um create value for themselves and have money flow that that way. Um absolutely what is it about that topic that just resonated to you that you started this series and this partnership with Forbes to create that? Yeah, I think it started with me from my own experiences. Mm. Um realizing that every industry, every opportunity is just a platform to mm. share your perspective and you know, to create, to build things that reflect the culture of you, you know, that reflect the things that you like that your value system, what you're passionate about, and um, how that has transferable value in all these different spaces, right? Like Mm -hmm. whether it's marketing, media, whatever your space is, um, there is value that lives in you and comes from you that's based on, you know, the different experiences you've had, the things you're exposed to, the things that you invest in, you know? So like... It started with me realizing that I was able to truly build and design a career across industries that just was a genuine reflection of me, you know, and what I thought and what I cared about and um, how at that time, like um, probably like 2012, 2011, 2012 is when I started telling uh, other creators and people that I knew mm-hmm. who would struggle with 
trying to figure out, you know, what industry they wanted to be in, what type of job they wanted to take on, what, mm-hmm. you know, or if they should just, it used to be that mentality of like, if you don't find the job you like, just throw all the papers in the air and go try to start a business or something, you know, like okay. there was just no kind of mobility or idea of, of being able to kind of just be yourself and design a career that just reflects who you are and, mm. and what you like. And uh, it was like, you know, talking to, to deaf people you know, they just didn't understand it, didn't know. Because I used to tell them, like, yo, while you're racking your brain, there's companies out here that literally will pay you just to be yourself. Wow. You know, like, put you in position to do what you do naturally and pay you for it. I I learned that first back in college, <laughs> you know, when I realized that I went from not getting paid and fighting to create all these different things that I just believed in. And then once all those things proved successful, now in all these different areas, I'm doing what I want, all these very different areas... I'm getting paid now to do all these different things in these different areas. And I've never changed up who I am one time. Well, you know, so like taking that same approach to the different industries, that's kind of where the idea first originated. Like just get paid to be yourself, the idea. And then when people, when it started hitting this wall, I was like, there has to be a way to show that this is a real thing, you know, for people. And then fast forward, being at Revolt, like going from advertising, having no previous ad experience to going into television, launching Revolt with no previous TV experience, being in that situation, going to Forbes, having never been a columnist before in HuffPost, having never written full time really outside of being an editorial director. But like these are completely different topics, completely different platforms, like um, teaching, ended up teaching the teaching the business through Media Beach, all this kind of stuff. I'm like. It's like they're different industries, but it's the same thing. Mm. It's the same template. It's the same like approach. Um, and so when I started seeing that, that's what inspired me to start the series. I said, okay, there's three parts of this. There's the theory of it. Then there's the example of it. And then there's the application of it. Hmm. So I was thinking, okay, I need something where I could really lay out the theory, the thinking behind what this is and why it matters and how the industry is changing and how the landscape is changing. Then I need to be able to show people through the stories of other people who've done it Mm -hmm. so that they can see themselves in it. They can relate to it. They know it's real. They know people have done this. And then at the same time, there needed to be something where people knew how they could apply it. Like what are the mechanics? Like, you know, you can't say, oh, that's just their story or like their journey. Nah, you have actual ways that you can apply these principles and this way of thinking to your own life to create more mobility and stuff for yourself. And so I specifically started out doing creators and like these really um, multifaceted and somewhat, you know, indescribable creatives, you know, people who you couldn't really like label or put a pinpoint on. Um, Like Ernest Baker and Marcus Troy Mm -hmm. and Friendy, who I mentioned, and Jabari, and mm. just these different people who are like young creatives who are really doing amazing stuff, but yeah. they were kind of under the radar and they had touched a lot, like they've been involved in a lot mm-hmm. and built these businesses because I felt like people needed to first see people that really were like them, same demographic, same mm-hmm. everything. Then got into some of the bigger players to also like balance it out. So getting into people who built huge businesses and like huge movements and then um then it kind of took this life of its own where um i felt like people started to see that outside of anything else like that's the real american dream right like that is getting paid to be yourself is the american dream that's how it changed that is the american dream and it's the american dream through not just a lens of like success or achievement it's the american dream through the lens of freedom and access and mobility mm-hmm. control Absolutely. um and so i think when you look at it like that it's being able to take one of the things i talk about all the time even with the stuff that i'm doing now is eliminating the barriers between like your personal life professional life extracurricular Mm. life Mm -hmm. like this should just be your lifestyle like the way you look at work-life balance or whatever is Mm -hmm. like there should just be this flow this ecosystem this 
rhythm that you have where it all feeds into each other. Mm. Like the conversations you have feed into your work. Mm -hmm. Your work is inspired by the experiences that you have. Like everything feeds each other. And you're literally looking at the business or building these things as literally like just these I say like the new era of influence is not about followings. It's literally about creating communities and creating culture. And I feel like, you know, that's the way people move is starting to embrace themselves as a culture. Like you are a subculture to pop culture Mm -hmm. as an individual. Uh, You know what I'm saying? So like when you look at it that way, you through your perspective, through your talents, through the way you move, have the ability to shape pop culture the same way any other subculture does. Mm -hmm. And create communities and things like that, just by being your like being yourself. So that's kind of where it originated from and how it evolved. And I felt like with Forbes, it was one of those things where I felt like also using that platform to tell that type of story mm-hmm. to this audience would just send the perfect message because it's the idea that like. Speaking to the relationship between culture and commerce, Mm. you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And translating that relationship to people. I saw it as opening the door. The same way you see Jay-Z and he he represents, right? Like lack of access and extreme access Mm -hmm. and literally bridges the gap between the two. This is literally like saying Forbes as a brand, as a platform, is like a level of aspiration and looks like a level of access and achievement or whatever that you would see. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's saying we can bridge that gap of access with the same people who are aspiring for access mm-hmm. and be able to literally teach, speak the language to everybody who runs the companies and controls these things and has the access translating why this whole audience is impacting everything they do why that value matters what the future is going to look like to them then at the same time being able to give game to people like us and speak the same language that we speak and say yo here's a game for you of how you get to that level of access how you are valuable how you're changing the game how you're inspiring and shaping these industries and how you have these opportunities right in front of you to like change the game and change your life and do these different types of things so it's like speaking to both sides Absolutely. you know what i'm saying because we've had discussions where we where, um we talk about how this is the information age and yeah. you know um even the people who come to your events are like, you know, they're aspiring in some way or another to innovate, something, right. create something, be entrepreneurs. And I always tell you that you're um, you're one of the leaders of um, that cultural identity now. Um, can you that talk about a lot. that um, responsibility um, that comes with that? Yeah, man. Um, if you're not, if you're not really doing the work to um, make a mark, you know what I'm saying, and like really change things or, um, you know, advance culture, as people say, like really leave your mark in a way that's going to um, make people better. I don't really know why you're doing this. You know what I'm saying? In terms of like, you know, there's people who want to be cool and, and like um, be, you know, popular or whatever, you know, make a lot of bread. That's great. But I just feel like um, this whole thing, I say all that to say is like, since I really realized like how much power I had and um, like, what my purpose was and, and had a vision for um, carrying that through, right? And really making a mark. I've always felt that responsibility. Like I've always felt it. It hasn't been a moment of like, um, you know, there's never been a moment of feeling myself or, or like getting lost in the sauce or um, 
getting caught up in like the who, what, where, and how of this whole thing. It's just always been about there's this this vision that I see, and um, that vision is bigger than me. And I feel like you know, it's here's the best way to describe the responsibility. Um, they say you've really found your life's work when you have found a problem only you can solve. And I feel like I've discovered the white space only I can fill. Whoa. The problem in this lifetime that only I can solve. Wow. Um, and like a perspective and a movement and a culture that I think is nobody can do it but me. Mm. And what I think about that is like, okay, so when you look at it that way, if I ever like didn't um, respect or, or treat that responsibility like it was, then I'm literally missing the mark for an entire generation of people. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? So that's the type of responsibility that you feel. It's like, I'm a person, like I'm imperfect. Like I have my issues, I have things going on. Hmm. And it's one of those things where that remain, that's like a constant, you know what I'm saying? Like you, I'm constantly thinking about like, you know, what's the, like pushing it a step further? Like, you know, what, like what should people be thinking about or doing or all of that, you know what I'm saying? And like following that vision and just staying true to that vision and doing the work to bring it to life. It's a, it's a huge responsibility, um, you know, because you you feel it all the time, bro. Like I feel I feel it too. I feel the responsibility of it in terms of like just seeing the seeing the need for it and seeing how people how much people want it and like the lack of people who look like us doing it. Mm-hmm. and building it and like connecting those stories and being able to translate it in that way. So, yeah, it's like a, it's a huge responsibility. Um and I just take it in stride in terms of I just got to make sure I'm focused and I'm doing what I need to do and staying on that path and just like locked into that, you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Um and training for the next level of everything that you do. Like Making sure that you're you're keeping yourself like humbled and hungry and driven and in that space where you know that next level is going to require you to take it up like mm. another level. And then when you get there, it's like the purpose has no peak kind of phrases. Mm. Like you just got to keep taking it another level it's the longevity right it's like the marathon not a sprint and that's part of the response feeling the responsibility too is knowing that you have to be somebody who can carry this for as long as you need to does that scare you or no what thinking that i think of of that response does it ever scare you or just motivates you i would say it doesn't scare me i think it motivates me a lot um it's part of why too why i'm so quiet sometimes mm-hmm. because i'm just when I think about it, I just think I'm like, all right, you know, it's almost like if you're um, like like Jordan or Kobe, right? When when like the game's on the line and they're in the huddle and they just kind of like you just see them just in their own in the zone. zone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like I think like that all the time. Like mm. like my mind when it talks about like seeing that, it's almost like um, being your own. You need to be your own Phil Jackson, like your own kind of coach. Um, I have a lot of moments like that where, you know, I'm just coaching myself or talking myself through it or envisioning it and 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 keeping myself just like focused and locked in and all of that like a lot. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't scare me. It motivates me, and it's it's something that, um, like I said before, I feel more the the older I get and the further along this process I get the more I literally feel this mission, like feel the movement of it. Like, mm-hmm. and so it's just like, 
you know, feeling like you got to take the shot. It's like that type of it's just that type of mentality. Is like, like I'm here to take the shot. Like, mm-hmm. games on the line. Pass me the rock. Pull up. Take the shot. And and that's just like the mentality. So. Yeah, it's just more of a zone. It's it's that ability, like even like Jay Z says, where the only way you can achieve like that level of excellence or greatness or whatever is when you're able to literally be in your own zone, like where you don't hear any other noise, you don't hear nothing else that's going on. You just really are able to to lock into your own space and move in your own world. And so for me, I feel like at this point, I'd be in my own world. Like, yeah. gotcha. That's dope. And, uh, uh, and it rings even truer because you are a writer. Like, your voice mm-hmm. definitely is the loudest in your head, even though you might be the quietest in a room. Like, it's yeah. volumes uh, above um, above everybody else. Yeah, and one thing I would say to, to Trav's point, to keep it simple also, is there was, like, a moment where, like, there were all the people that I aspired to, right, and looked up to and felt like, you know, the way these people changed the world or change culture or like influence me I'm like yo one day like I want to be like that person mm. now I'm like I am that person <laughs> so like those same people that I looked at who inspired me now I'm like yeah I'm like on the same level as these people like this I'm is where I'm at so now it's like my time to build my thing that changes culture it's time for me to build and lead like my movement that's gonna have that legacy or make that mark like like I see myself in the same vein. So it's like the same responsibility or the same impact these people had when they were building these things that like shifted culture. You know, like I think about I used to always say in college, you know, I wanna have a a media company like the way Rob Stone built Fader, the way Mark Echo built Complex, right? I would say that back in college. And to be in that situation now when you think about the the magnitude, what shifted when those things first dropped and when that happened and like the things that they created. Um, and now like literally from like a Puff or Rob Stone or Troy Carter uh Mark Echo, like all these people, seeing these people eye to eye and like working, talking, collaborating, building, seeing it mm-hmm. at that level, like like almost like metaphorically seeing it eye to eye. Mm-hmm. I'm like, we're no different. Whoa. You know what I'm saying? And in fact, like it's about continuing the culture. So what I'm doing should be bigger than what everybody's built. There you go. And that's and the more key. influential, you know what I'm saying? That's so what people need to know is that you're, you're really no different from these guys. You know, nah. You, you built, because, you, you know, at, the, at certain points, they may look like, you know, mythical in a way. You know what I mean? These mm-hmm. guys have accomplished these things. But when you when you do lock in and you zone in and realize you're only focusing on, you know, what your gifts are, you get to a point where you can, like, Bro, okay. That's the greatest lesson on this journey you'll ever learn. The greatest yeah. lesson you'll learn, bro, is stay in your lane. <laughs> stay focused, stay in your lane, and do the work. You know, I always say because you realize that the irony of staying in your lane is you end up lapping all the people you thought were ahead. <laughs> stay in your lane, stay true to yourself. Anytime you feel yourself comparing yourself to things or comparing yourself to other people, Literally just remind yourself that the vision you have, nobody else can execute. Hmm. Like, think about the path you're on is literally your path. It's like your mission, what you're going to do. So the more that you just stay true to that or the more you like invest in that and just do not get caught up in all the stuff that you're seeing or hearing or whatever... Literally, you lift your head up and you're like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm like in a space that I envisioned or I imagined or, you know, back at the last checkpoint, I only like could see or dream about. Mm-hmm. And then you lift your head up and you're there. 
and then you get back to doing the work and you stay focused you got your head down again and you lift yourself back up and you're further than you were and you're like okay and then literally you get to a point where you and your lane are building and carving out the space that only you could carve out and only you could like lead and that's never defined by like trends or like moments or anything like that it's like really about you know you being your own trendsetter and your own you know what i'm saying like leader your own life coach your own person like be your own person you know what i'm saying like that's a key too to also activating the law of attraction being able to attract the right people and opportunities and energy and all of that like Mm -hmm. that starts with being your own person and being the most authentic version of who you are at all times you know what i'm saying so greatest lesson though man is is definitely like staying in your lane and um getting to a point where you're so confident in your own lane too that you know you trust yourself you trust your instincts you trust the moves you make good bad or indifferent you ride for yourself you know like the whole bet on yourself you're willing Mm -hmm. to like go above and beyond to where you know that nobody nothing on the outside can dictate where you're going to end up you know what i'm saying like nothing like no noise no extra stuff there's Mm -hmm. no kind of politics there's no kind of nothing that's actually going to be able to stop Mm. where you're going and when you get that type of mentality literally that's how you move that's how you walk it's like it don't matter what this person's title is. It don't matter what this situation is. It don't matter what this, what any of this is. Like I've seen where I'm headed and where I'm going. I can see it. I can feel it. I can touch it. It's like nothing can stop that. That, that like that vision is God given. That's like from the universe. That was predetermined. It's like you nothing go. you could do about that. There you go. So that's kind of like the space you gotta you gotta be in. Dude, I'm, I'm moved. What? <laughs> <laughs> I, I really, really for real. Um, we ask everybody on the cast, um, you know, uh, your own driven minds, what drives okay. you? What gives you that gusto to get up in the morning or to continuously, um, you know, hit hit the ground with that same energy? Yeah, I would say there's a couple of things that really drive me all the time. You know, at this time, I have a son. My son's five years old. Um, so I always am constantly thinking about, like, you know, being in a position to you know, on this scale in terms of things that drive me for what I'm building and what I'm doing, I think about, okay, I'm in a position to build the things that are going to influence him the way that, like, I was influenced by media and music and culture and all that coming up. So I think a lot about that. That pushes me to keep myself, you know, like, honest and true and authentic and making sure I'm going extra hard and I'm, I'm like, very intentional about the messages and the, and the things that I'm putting putting out. And then on top of that, just going hard too, because you're building a legacy. Like you, you're doing things that like he could be proud of and grow up and and feel proud of, but also feel a part of and feel like, you know, this is something where when I'm challenging him and telling him, you know, like, yo, you know, go after this or move this way or think like this, create your own lane. And he looks at me and says, well, what did you do? You know, like, Mm. I can be proud of that answer. You know what I'm saying? I can say, this is what I did. I can show you, you know, that I did I did that. Like, I followed that. I did this so, you know, I lived it so I can encourage you to do the same thing. I think the other thing, too, is what we talked about, man, is the responsibility. That drives me a lot. Um, it excites me, too. Like, it drives me and it excites me to think about, like, yo, like, really being able to create and have the vision to build and the tools to build a positive culture shifting fly smart movement that could literally change the lifestyle of a generation hmm. just thinking about that to me like makes me want to go 10 times harder because it's very real to me hmm. it's not just like this far fetched like thing like i can see it I can feel it, like I like, so that drives me a lot. Mm-hmm. Then I think the other thing that drives me too is the fact that like, you know, being an example to so many people, mm. you know, like, uh, and leading by example, like, 
you know, I really feel like a big part of it is leading by example and then showing people, you know, like the lessons or the power of the example that you're setting and the moves you make and the things you're doing and the work that you put in. Um, so it drives me to people that look to me from like family, friends, peers, colleagues, like other people. You know, I feel like there's a lot of people that, um, whether it's just my kind of fuck it attitude sometimes or like, um, the kind of rebellion or just a sense of doing the things that I want to do and, and doing it the way I want to do it, like that kind of confidence that can seem kind of like blind or stupid at times, like um, to just being somebody who genuinely is for the people, you know, like and for, um, you know, doing something that's really positive and really, you know, important. Um, I think that matters, you know, like to a lot of people seeing that and experiencing that and like, uh, being an example of that. Um, so, so I would say those are definitely, um, like three key things, you know, that drive me. And I'm, I'm the first in my family to do anything in this way or at this level too. So it's like a part of it too is about setting the trend, like in the lineage, like, um, being the first, uh, in the family, the first in the in the lineage to like really set the bar super high, so that everybody that comes after that bar is high. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So like, you know, so I'd say those four things are probably like what really keep me, you know, driven driven the most. There you go. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Already know. Where, where can we find you on the socials? Yeah, man. Social media: Twitter, Instagram at all things Mitch. All things Mitch, Twitter and Instagram, uh, LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can either search Julian Mitchell or uh, LinkedIn.com backslash uh, Mr. Mitch. Um, so I do a lot of like writing and a lot of different stuff on LinkedIn. Also, and then Forbes. If you follow the column, you can just go to Forbes.com, type my name, or uh, Google search it. And you can hit the follow button and get you know all the latest stories when they drop. Sweet. Fire. You already know, young Mitch the mogul. Yeah, deserve. thank you guys. Thank you guys. No, thank you. I hope that wasn't through. too much like backstory. Man, extra stuff. I, you know me, sound backs. Look at bro, look at look at Trav. <laughs> See, I know Trav face though. Trav's like, yo, bro. <laughs> nah, man. You're saying too much. Bro. No, no, no. We I, I, honestly, we, we love conversation. Man, we love yeah, these stories, bro. Especially the audience. They don't yeah. love this. It, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's dope when we could like sit back and really listen and absorb, you know, exactly. the words and, and the gems. But um, thank you for coming through. Um, you guys definitely check Mitch out on um, Forbes, mm-hmm. LinkedIn, Instagram, and um, and definitely um, yes. the events that will be coming up. We got some exciting news Absolutely. really soon. Um, Shout out to y'all too, man. With that Ryan Leslie event was dope. Fire. Looking forward to doing a lot more. Shout out to WeWork. There you Ryan go. Leslie. Um, Bel Air. There you go. Have to. You already Facts. Know. Like, like we always. Like we always say this time. <laughs> I don't know. You gonna say I'm saying? Yeah. Stay, stay driven. Yo. Stay driven. Facts.